This week on Never the Empty Nest, we have Dr. Catherine Esty, who's written a book. It's about 80-somethings. How amazing is that? It's called A Practical Guide to Letting Go, Aging Well, and Finding Unexpected Happiness. We can't wait. Here we go. Like a sparrow building shelter with branches for its young. My mother built a nest with love for her little ones. My grandfather told her it doesn't matter what you have. The only thing you need for life is each other's helping hands. Never the empty nest, my mother always says. Spread your wings and fly, you can always come back to rest. Never the empty nest, my mother always says. Wherever you may go to grow, this will always be your home. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Never the Empty Nest with Vanessa and Jackie and Nicole. And today we have a super, super great show for you because we have a very exciting guest. We have Dr. Catherine Esty with us today. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about her before I bring her on the show. But we're going to be talking today with Catherine about her book and also her life. She is 88 and has written a book called 80 Somethings, A Practical Guide to Letting Go, Aging Well, and Finding unexpected happiness. She's a social psychologist, a psychotherapist, and an activist for aging well, which I just love. It's a really exciting conversation because it's about how the 80s can be the happiest moment in your life. And um, she has found that it is for some. She was also for more than 20 years a managing partner at Ibis Consulting Group, a strategic planning and diversity firm, and her clients were Fortune 500 companies, universities, and UN agencies. She's had an amazing life. She's the mother of four sons, and right now she's really focused on giving everybody an understanding of the possibilities for living well as you age into your 80s, and she lives just outside of Boston, and we're welcoming her now. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Delighted, actually. And I love the idea of this intergenerational conversation, because uh, that's one of my passions of getting people to talk across. Uh, what usually or can be the generational barriers. Yes, that was what was so exciting when we came across your, your book and what you do, because you have inside your book, these sort of touch points and conversations for not just 80 somethings, but also the family around people that are aging and vice versa. And, and there was just so many exciting things in the book. I wanted to start just talking about how you started this book, you have this anecdote at the beginning of it about how there was one day where you were climbing a mountain with your sons, uh, I believe, and you in your head were, of course, I'm gonna, you know, climb to the summit. And at some point, your body sort of said, no, not today. That was kind of the end of it. That was a very special day. And that moment that you were getting to of me, sort of when my body just, uh, we, I had thought it was going to be an easy hike. I'd done it so many times, but it had rained the day before, so it was a little muddy, and I slipped in the first half hour and kind of scraped my knee, and it wasn't too bad, but it did bleed, and then I kind of fell again, 
And when we got to the last stretch of the hike up Cat Mountain, I looked up and you, it's a scramble. You have to pull their roots and there's rocks and you have to hold with your hands. You're on your hands and knees going up. And suddenly I said to myself, I can't do this. I just can't do it. And I was so shocked because before that was like I was the super mom. I could kind of go through, power through. But that moment... It was a, a, a moment that changed my life. I was in despair because I, I, I suddenly realized I couldn't do it, and it just was such a come up and such a shock. So I sat down on a stump, and one of my son, my son Dan, stayed with me, and the rest, of the grandkids and the uh, the others, all uh, scampered. I looked to me, scampered up the mountain, and I sat with my son Dan. And first thing I thought is, I'm going to have to change it. What's worked before so well for me, and here I am, just 80 at that point. It was just after my 80th birthday. It's not going to be the same. I have to change. And I sat there just so down. And we sat there and sat there some more. And finally, it sort of came to me, well... Maybe I can change. Maybe I can change. Maybe, uh, maybe there's there's hope. And so, the uh, in about an hour later, they all came down from the top. By then, I had put myself enough together to realize that maybe there was going to be some uh, way that I could go on and put myself back together again. And but it was an aha moment, as you said, and it did change my life. And it opened, you know, it, it was kind of a closing of the door of powering through issues and the beginning of a new approach. I love that story so much because um, you you talk about how it really led you to to sort of say, okay, well, in this new approach, I'm going to do some reading, right? And then you go out there and you see that they sort of clump in the literature 65 to 100, <laughs> those ages <laughs> so all together. Yeah, and then you you sort of have this space for, okay, how do I then approach this age group that you yourself were entering? And you interviewed 128 80-somethings and their families, which is so magnificent, and you get some of their stories. And what was the process of actually finding the people that you were going to interview and going out in search of the people that you were going to ask these questions to and study and share um, their stories with us, readers? Well, what I did was I said, you know, I said to myself, somebody must know how to do 80s well. In the, all, the whole world, there's got to be people that are doing better than I am. I was kind of, uh, after that summer, I was in a kind of funk and I just couldn't kind of shake it. I felt down. So then I thought, well, I'll start, maybe I can uh, interview people and find out how they manage. So I started, I live in a retirement community and I was already there. So I, I started with just people that I didn't know that it was, I was newish. So there were a lot of people I didn't know. So I interviewed people that looked like they were enjoying themselves. And I interviewed maybe six or eight people there. And I found out they were doing very interesting things I was totally unaware of, you know, that some of them were failing and uh, some of them were traveling to different places, had just come back from a garden tour of Japan. And people were continuing to have adventures and doing things that I would never have expected, like be very interested in insects and have a big collection of them. Wow. Then I thought, well, I've got to broaden my thing. And so I started out by people I knew on the West Coast. Uh, I had a cousin in California and got 
got her to find people in their 80s for me. And someone else I knew in uh, Albuquerque, and she knew a, a lot of people that were Native Americans and black uh, people. And so she hooked me up with a kind of other people to t- talk on the phone with. Then I, when I traveled, I, it took me about three years of the uh, wow. that interviewing process. Yeah. And so if when I traveled myself, I, I went to, to, uh, to New Orleans and I went to Philadelphia and New York State. Everywhere I went, I worked. And I, so I got a very diverse group of people by the end of it. And, and as I saw what I was missing, I realized I was missing people that were on the bottom of the economic. Uh, I had mostly gotten people that were upper middle class or middle class. And so I made a concerted effort and I had gotten healthier people. And I said, well, maybe I'm sort of um, loading the dice here by not getting people that are not doing well, because my people I was finding were doing all these interesting things. And many of them were really thriving. So then I went to nursing homes and I did find some people that weren't thriving there, but that filled out uh, the kind of diversity that I was looking for. So I had geographic diversity. I had uh, men and women. I had um, some racial diversity and I had uh, economic diversity. So that I felt it wasn't a scientific sample. I wasn't trying to write an academic book. I was trying to write a book that answered the question, what is it really like to be in your 80s and what are the possibilities? And then I finished it off by saying, well, you know, I've been doing these family issues and I thought, but I've only seen uh, the 80-somethings from their own point of view about themselves. So how about the point of view of their children? And now adult children, their children would be, uh, you know, 60, 50, 40. And so I interviewed uh, like a cohort of them, like I think about 25 of them uh, to just kind of test the waters and find out how, uh, what, what were the issues from their point of view. Yeah, that's, I mean, what a beautiful journey. I mean, what of these stories are so many that, that you, you went through, through this, this journey across the states and, and generations that, um, was there any that stands out in your mind that sort of either taught you the most or you were most sad about or most joyful about? Yeah, I, I do. I have a, a couple that I would like to share with you. I mean, I disguised the names in my books, and I wanted to not have people, their, their personal lives opened up to the general public. And people did talk very openly to me, I think partly because I had been a psychotherapist. I was knew how to have conversations. But anyhow, we'll start with a guy that I call Miguel. What he taught me was he was one of the most balanced people that had was truly himself and truly enjoying his life. He said he was Portuguese by uh, ethnicity, and you know he'd been a poor kid, and he didn't he didn't go to college. But he, when he was about twenty, he was working, and somebody came up to him and told him he could probably get a scholarship in music at the local university, and he did. And so he just said, "I was so lucky." And then he felt lucky, and by the time I met him, he was eighty. He'd retired from his long-term teaching job as a high school teacher. He wasn't, he only made, he told me how much he made, which was $40,000 a year, which isn't enough to be, um, you know, live in luxury in in these days. And he said, but but I've got a steady pension. So uh, he he said, me and my wife, we are going to do fine. And he said, well, I'm a happy man. And I explain it like this. 
there's a couple of ways to explain it. One is, you know, I've always had music. I'm always in a band. I have all my buddies that I see, and we, I thought I'm close to my family. My family's calm. He said, then, of course, I, every day I take a nap, and that kind of keeps me going because I, I, I find I am more tired. And then he did admit, he said, and I also take sometimes half a pepper-upper pill. And so I never knew which it was that made the, him such a happy man. But he taught me that, you know, that happiness is available. It doesn't take uh, riches or travel, it, you know, that he made his happiness. And I just never have gotten past uh, Miguel. Is, you know, I still think of him. So he's one that I would want to tell you about. I've got two others I kind of would like to share with you. Please, yes. Okay, I'll tell you a sad I tell you a sad story. I mean, um, this is a woman, I call her Avery. She was actually beautiful at 80, kind of in a fluttery, uh, anxious kind of way. But she felt that she always was calling herself an old lady. When she, uh, her husband died, she said, well, I'm not comfortable in my neighborhood because it's all young people and nobody wants to be with an old lady like me. And, you know, there was no way I could tell her that not to feel that way, but mm -hmm. she repeated that. And she said, and then I took my uh, granddaughter on a trip to, um, down, uh, to they, we went to New York for a few days and she was, I felt like she, why would she want to be with me? Cause she would like to be with her friends. Then it was time for Avery to move out of her house. Cause she wasn't man able to manage it. She moved mm -hmm. and she kept telling her children, Oh, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. And she really wasn't. She had a, a bravado for them, and she never unpacked the boxes. And oh. she just uh, never reached out to make to talk to anybody in her new building. And I, to me, she was the saddest story because she somehow didn't see the possibilities of being older. And she was a lovely person, mm -hmm. but she kept believing these myths about aging. And uh, it was a, such a demonstration to me of how people uh, internalize these bad thoughts about what it means to be old. And um, so she's a sad story. And uh, I think of her often. Yeah. And the last one I'll tell you is a, a sort of a poignant story. I found a new love in my life. And so this is a story about somebody else's love. And I think it is possible for older people to find new loves. This is about Maggie. Maggie has uh, terrible arthritis. She has sort of gnarled hands and she can't walk really well and when I interviewed her she was in her 80s she's now I think 91 or two but she tells the story of how um, she stays loves to be in her farmhouse way at the end of a road even though she can't drive so her life is very difficult to get places and she depends on other people she was one that directed a play at a, at a local playhouse and she met somebody and they became uh, friends and uh, I, I called him Graham and Graham said he was going to Florida down where you all are uh, and um, invited her to come visit for a week. The story is uh, the two of them would go swimming every day and one day they went to the beach and getting to the beach uh, it took Maggie three hours to get dressed every day by her, the guy herself. It's just a very painful thing. So walking across the beach to get to the water was also a slow process but she had a cane and Graham had two canes and the two of them walked together across this uh, beach and as they parked their car a bunch of motorcycle guys, five of them 
pulled up behind them, and they were going to have a rest, evidently. So they kind of sat there while Maggie and Graham painfully made their way across the sand and got in the water, and they sort of bounced up and down, holding each other and hugging each other and talking and bouncing around. And then they came out, and when they came out, the motorcycle guys were still there, and they... Uh, as they went past them, uh, they shouted at uh, Maggie and Graham, just watching you makes me want to age and grow old. It looks so beautiful. Oh, it makes me teary. <laughs> and it makes me see, and it was not it was a good one to put in the book to, to show that, you know, the possibilities are really there for at all ages to, to love and to be close, uh, all of this, even up to our very last days. Those beautiful human connections that you have throughout the book, they're so, they feel so at the center of the happiness that, that people feel, you know, at any age and that story I, I definitely remember as the, the the love stories are always wonderful I mean those are wonderful stories yeah my mom was gonna ask something because there's a section of the book about upside down parenting in other words when uh the the kids sort of start acting like parents in a way and having to take care of their the aging parents in one way shape or form or another and in our podcast, we definitely talk a lot about this in respect to my grandmother, which is my mom's mom, which um, she's very much the caretaker for now. And I know she has a lot of questions about upside down parenting. Um, so I'm going to hand over the mic a little bit to her, to Jackie. Okay, Jackie, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Hi, Catherine. I just enjoyed so thoroughly everything that you've said I'm going to be 67 and I see life as life. And with all the sharing that you've done and, and the work that you've done in this regard, it just gives me so much hope for someone like me in 67 who has all this responsibility, right? And and overcommitment and all of this to know that it's not over yet you know, God willing, right? Right. It isn't over. There's so much life ahead of us. Is such actually a blessing to hear. And a relief. Refreshing <laughs> would be an understatement. So then I know that in that path, at least it's been my experience with my parents. My dad was more open to upside down parenting. I just love that. I didn't know what to call it. I just thought, well, at some point, our children, in a way, in some kind of way, become our parents, right? When does that happen? My mother is more resistant to that fact. I like to respect that. But there comes a time when really depends on the person. You really do have to become the parent for someone, at least like my mom, who has always been a dependent, not physically, but a dependent kind of woman. And we lost my dad, well, almost two years ago. He was 98. And so when do you think, or what is your experience maybe in your interview process of, you know, when does this happen? I'm super flexible. You know, uh, I know that our, I, I actually, to a certain degree, sometimes the girls do some parenting because I, I, I learn a lot from them. Yeah, I think it is a two-way process, and I think it's different for everybody. But I think, you know, you've raised a whole bunch of uh, many, many issues. We could talk for days just on what you've said. But I think, um, you know, I, what I have seen is there's some patterns. And I think the upside-down 
phenomena really is when I, I think if, when the children kind of really need or do uh, take on the parenting role. And, you know, they sometimes they take it on at just the right moment. Sometimes they take it on and perhaps when the, the real parent isn't ready for it yet. And I've seen uh, like there's three of certain situations that confront people. And as you know, actually, we all are on a continuum from being pretty independent, interdependent. And then we get in the last phases and years of life where we are not so independent or interdependent. We really have to be leaning on others. There comes a time in certain situations where the, the adult kids have to intervene. And that is what I think raises a lot of problems and issues. One of the issues is when uh, the parent, the 80, 90, 75, 95-year-old parent is driving and kind of is having accidents or kind of is not really, they get everybody worried and they get worried not only for their parent, but they're worried they don't want their parent to have an accident and, you know, and hurt somebody else. So then they have to do something. They have to be the parent. And that is where the, it's a challenge. Well, I think the mistake is that the kids get so anxious and they come in and say, we were taking away your license and, you know, and it just ruins the relationship. They get very bossy. So it's important for the kids to think about how to make the intervention and how to listen. And But they still have to be firm in some situations. And it's similar with if the parent has dementia. It also happens when, and I guess that's one of the issues in the, when the parent is in a living condition that they really, it's too much for them. They can't manage any longer. And I think, again, at that point, sometimes it's up to the kids to to really intervene and and they but it takes incredible uh, skill to kind of bring everyone along and not get the relationships uh, get a lot of anger going between the generations that's why I spent you know wanted to interview from both sides and I think what I learned by interviewing the kids of the aging parent is how well, how much it's coming out of love and coming out of caring. I mean, those bonds between aging parents and their children are just so important. And, you know, it's one of the last things that you know, people hold on to, their family ties. And yet the anxiety and trying to do what's right can make it uh, tough and lead to these some unpleasant situations. I think it is worth uh, thinking about learning some communication and figuring out how to start up the conversation. I mean, I put conversation starters in my book and people love them because people don't know how to do it and they feel bad like that they are putting blinders on and are not speaking about when they realize that their dad should go to the doctor and he's, you know, had stomach pains and been bleeding and all kinds of things and they just, he, he refuses. So how do you deal with a stubborn dad who's uh, 90 years old and won't go to the doctor? So yeah. it's a very common problem, but it, it's, of course, unique for each person. I think that you've touched on something very uh, interesting and, and you talk about communication and I think that sometimes these are things, you know, depending on the dynamic of the family, if the dynamics from before are not based on open communication, I, I can imagine, and I know for a fact, actually, because uh, I had a dichotomy in, in my own life with my mother and my father. I was able to be very open with my dad, with my mom. I have to dance around her. Always did before. Nothing has changed. So I continue to try to find the best way, right, to, to communicate with her. 
Right. But it is so interesting to point that out. For my generation, I'm a Cuban refugee. Uh, I'm 67, will be 67. I've been in the United States since I was five years old. I'm half Cuban, half Spanish. And so we, many of us of, you know, most of us are boomers, you know, uh, of that age. And many of us did not have the great opportunity of living with older people because our families were separated. I was not raised with my grandparents because my maternal grandparent was in Cuba, stayed in Cuba, and we didn't grow up with them. And and then my paternal grandparent was parents were from Spain. Those I had more of an interaction with. So people like me are clueless to what happens when people age because we did not have it under our own roof or, or next to us. I think interestingly enough, Jackie, lots of people don't have that because today we don't live with our grandparents. Right. So there's many people that grew up without their their grandparents nearby. So I think it's a more common problem that, than it was in the past. But I think it's also because people respect their parents, they have trouble kind of intervening and they try to show respect. But you, the question they know deep in their hearts that you can't just deny that uh, aging parent needs help or needs something. And they, it takes a lot of wisdom to figure out how to talk to the aging parent in a way that they can hear. So I think there are some skills. And, you know, I, in my book, I put, put down what I've learned. And uh, the people have found that very useful um, when they're facing, you know, some kind of dilemma with their uh, aging parent. And, and so I'm... You know, and I can hear for you, too, that you're just speaking for many other people uh, with your concerns about uh, feeling a little bit uh, bewildered in how do you do this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're super grateful for this book. And I know that when I told my mom about it, she was like, oh, my God, thank God this book exists. Yeah, good. Well, it's nice that you all read it. Yeah. You know, the best it's, it's a gem, okay? The book is a gem. And I think that because there are so many moving parts to this book, from what you just perfectly described to actually the hope, the tools, the wisdom, the insight to my generation as, and, and, and you know, or near my generation as to what's ahead of us and our children too. So it's, it's like a blanket. And we've just been covered by a magic blanket. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I a lot of people have told me that, you know, their life was changed by this. And that made me feel uh, really fantastic uh, because um, that's what I was trying to do to answer and kind of provide some preparation for everyone's going to grow old if they're lucky. And we have such mixed messages on so many myths and so many uh, misunderstandings about age. You know, the main thing I found, you know, in my research was how unexpectedly happy older people are, people in their 80s, that people say, well, how could they be happy? They're, you know, they're on canes, they, you know, they eyesight is failing, they can't walk, they can't hear, they have hearing aids. And the, the fact is that that was my finding from my research and also the research of other writers, the people that are studying older people, uh, that the older generations are happier, that, you know, they found out that the 80s are happier than the 70s, 70s are happier than the 60s, and 60s are happier than people in their 50s. So you all have lots to look forward to that people weren't aware of. And I think the research also gives us a little insight onto why 
people are happy. Not only they're retired and don't have to work and have more freedom and sleep late and things like that, but also um, that Mother Nature has made it so our, we calm down, you know, that we um, no longer, uh, you know, we're, our life is not such peaks and valleys. People are less angry and less anxious and less everything, a little bit smoother. Older couples don't throw plates at each other the way people in their <laughs> people have sort of have calmed down as they age. So it makes it a little bit easier to be calm and to be uh, and explain some of that uh, incre- that incredible happiness that uh, older people do feel. There's so much to look forward to, and I feel like that is one of the messages of this of this book that's just beautiful. And um, to sort of bring us full circle, I just want to ask you how you feel that your life has changed from that day that you couldn't reach the summit and had that aha moment to to right now. I've changed so much. You know, that was a, such a shock when I was 80 because I had never come up against uh, something like that. But then when I, about uh, some years later, I did have a serious problem and had to have surgery, stomach surgery. And so ever since then, I am more vulnerable. I mean, I recovered well, the surgery went well, but I, you know, lost six inches of my intestines. It was a major surgery. So I am more vulnerable. And I've also lost, oddly enough, my sense of smell, which doesn't sound, well, I don't know how it sounds. People, I was talking with somebody, at, some people at dinner in, in, the other night, and they were saying, oh, but, but, what, how does this taste and how does that? And I mentioned I'd lost my sense of smell, and they said, oh, that must be terrible. And and I, then I said, well, I can walk and I can hear and I can see. And I, I mean, I kept thinking, listing all the things I could do. And I think that's how I've evolved, that I'm very grateful, truly grateful for all the things I can do. So I've changed um, and I've been happier. I have you, you kind of where, where uh, people wonder, is it true that people are really as happy? I would have to say I have had a very happy eight years in my 80s. And I've had some challenges too. So I can't say every minute has been happy. But the people I interviewed, I on a scale of one to 10, said they were mostly eight and nine. Wow. 10 being the most happy. And only I only had a handful that were fours, fives, and sixes, like six or seven. And all the others were eight, nine, or 10. So anyway, and I certainly feel like I would give myself a a nine, maybe an 8.5, something like that. I think that's a great way to leave our, our listeners just with so much to look forward to, with so many tools in this book in this gem of a book, as my mom said. And and we just want to thank you, one, for writing it, and two, for being on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. And I want to thank you for having me and having being part of this intergenerational conversation. It's very heartening to see your the two daughters and the mother talking and trying reading the book together. I mean, that's, you're a model for other uh, people. I think it's such a nice picture that I'm left with as I uh, say goodbye and I want to just say it was a great experience and thank you. Thank you Catherine and thank you everybody and we will hear you all next time on Never the Empty Nest. I'll be here to cheer you on that's a mother's All of your success, she says, all the great things ahead. I'll be here when it's time to see you again. And if you fall, she says, if someone breaks your heart, I'll mend your wounds in this nest of ours till you're 
do 